In the mood for a change of scenery? Take a look underwater. It's all of this jade light. It's forests of bull kelp and some really dynamic animals like wolf eels, which kind of look like underwater Muppets. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, Amanda Castleman unveils the underwater worlds of the diving enthusiast. And Steven Skeep takes a closer look at the cities we live in, especially the explosion of megacities in places like Pakistan and the issues these huge cities raise for all the places we call home. What kind of a country do we want to live in? What kind of a city do we want to live in? What kind of a neighborhood should this be? What kind of a civilization do we want to be a part of? And Scott Wallace finds that even in the Amazon, tensions can run high when you venture into the territory of one of the last tribes to escape contact with the rest of us. The only dialogue between them and the outside world has been one of flying bullets in one direction and flying arrows in the other. Let's plunge into the world together. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If you think it's getting crowded where you live, take a closer look at countries like Bangladesh, India, China, even Colombia and Pakistan. They lead the list of countries with the densest metro areas in the world. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, NPR's Steve Inskeep explores the issues that massive urban growth poses for how we all live. We'll hear what he discovered in Karachi, Pakistan, a megacity whose population has just exploded in the last two generations, and what lessons it can teach all of us in the cities we call home. Or would you rather be left alone? We'll also talk with Scott Wallace. Scott was part of a National Geographic team that went deep into the Amazon, where your GPS is absolutely useless. He'll tell us what it's like to follow the tracks of an uncontacted tribe. It's a delicate balance between guarding their isolation and dodging poison arrows. Let's start with another part of the world few of us ever get to experience. More than 70% of our Earth is covered with water. What kinds of worlds lie under the surface? Diving enthusiast Amanda Castleman says it's like plunging through the looking glass. She's a freelance journalist based in Seattle. She's enjoyed scuba dives all over the world. Amanda, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Rick. Amanda, when you talk about breaking through, plunging through the looking glass, where did that come from? I just love that image. Well, I grew up on Samish Island, north of Seattle, and had always sort of run up and down the beach, you know, on the sort of surf logs and the mud flats. But I'd never really thought about what was underneath Puget Sound in particular, where we live. And it, it looks very cold and foreboding, I think, from the outside. But once you get under, it's all of this jade light. It's forests of bull kelp and some really dynamic animals like wolf eels, which kind of look like underwater Muppets, eight-foot-long ribbon of underwater Muppet. So there's quite a bit down there and a lot more color than you might expect looking from the outside. When you go diving, you look up at the surface of the water. And the light sparkling down through. And yeah. what, what torpedoes by? Well, around here, you might see a six-scale shark a wolf eel. Sometimes sea lions come up. This hasn't happened to me, but a sea lion will come up and actually put its mouth over the back of divers' heads because the uh, bubbles well, kind of... likes the bubbles. Yeah, they tickle its mouth. And I love that, the, the swords of light that come through the water. The shafts, yeah, especially when you get um, a forest of bull kelp coming up through and that light slanting down. Now, when you swim in a forest of kelp, is, is it kind of creepy or is it... Well, you need to be a little careful not to get tangled up. Um, Seriously? You could get tangled yeah, in the kelp? Yeah, yeah, that's why people wear dive knives. I haven't been tangled in kelp, but I did get tangled in like a crab pot line down in the Channel Islands and was lucky my dive partner was nearby and just came and unwrapped me. But, you know, people certainly do occasionally get nervous in situations like that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Amanda Castleman about some of the wonders you find when you break through the looking glass and you go underwater. Now, you wrote an article which was just wonderful called Calm as a Hurricane's Eye, talking about diving in Honduras. What do you mean by calm as a hurricane's eye? Well, at the time, I was freshly divorced. And uh, I think a lot of people get sort of that giddy sense of freedom. I was sort of having trouble being measured in my approach to life, shall we say. Everything needed to be turned up to 11. Um, and that's not what diving is about. It's, it's about being still, observing the animals, moving gracefully in this medium. And as soon as I certified... I was following my yo-yo dive buddy who was going up and down the water column, which is exactly what you don't do because it injures your ears, I think you know from your diving. I just felt like there was sort of a, a bigger lesson about sort of having a second gear and not always taking things zero to 60 that Honduras helped me learn. And I think that was a hard lesson for me. I was in my, I guess, late 20s at the time. I think for a lot of people, downshifting like that um, and just observing instead of talking 
being physical with your environment, to just observe. That's kind of a real gift. A lot of diving is about grace and stillness underwater. I mean, I think we we think of it as a very sort of extreme macho in fact, sport. In fact, you wrote that sometimes counterintuitively, you don't need to be some sort of a bodybuilder to be a great scuba diver. You might need to be a bodybuilder to climb a mountain or climb Absolutely. a rock face. Mm-hmm. But to dive. Diving is more about breath control and stillness moving through the water. First of all, you don't want to scare off the animals you've gone down there to look at. But often you'll see tiny little women. Um, In the case of Pacific Northwest diving, some of these ladies are going to the water with 100 pounds of gear. They've got twin tanks on their backs. They're carrying maybe 35 pounds of lead weight so that they can descend. And big, thick dry suits with, like, fleece pajamas underneath. Um, So you'll see these tiny little, like, five-foot grandma going down the beach with all of this gear. And when she's in the water and that weight's being supported, she can outmaneuver. She's like a ballerina. Absolutely, yeah. Give me a sense of place here in Honduras. I love the way you talked about the the soundtrack down there and sea turtles with stubby limbs starfishing by and cleaning out your mask with a snort of bubbles. Yeah, this was my um, my first open water diving experience. It was when I certified. And I was uh, most struck. There's a lot of reefs where you can swim in and out of these shafts of light. Um, and when you're down there, you'll hear parrotfish kind of chewing the reef. And they're actually producing the sand that falls down to the bottom. Why are they chewing the reef? I believe they're eating the algae that lives inside the coral. Okay, and there's just a little collateral damage to the coral itself there. Yeah, but it almost forms like this this sort of reggae downbeat when you're under the water, which was not what I expected. I'd sort of anticipated serene silence or like a you know BBC Earth soundtrack or something. But Honduras, I mean, I think for me was most notable for two reasons. One is I'd had this long-standing dream of becoming a diver. As a child, I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Had not done enough research to understand that women couldn't be Navy SEALs and was horribly disappointed. You know, I guess Demi Moore got to do it in G.I. Jane, but I didn't get to live the dream. However, my cousin did become a Navy diver, and he passed away, um, gosh, I guess he was in his mid-20s, from a childhood bone cancer that caught up with him. So it was a couple years after his death. Part of why I certified was to feel closer to my cousin. And you got that certification in Honduras? In Honduras, yes. And it was quite fun. I was later out on an assignment for a sport diver, and I ran into a set of his friends, like, deep out in the Pacific in Micronesia. And, in fact, one of them had his fins that they'd taken on a commemorative world tour. Oh, that's <laughs> beautiful. And then you wrote in your article about a pod of pilot whales that surrounded the boat as if it was a benediction. Explain that. That was the other really tremendous thing. I'm sure it was coincidence, but it felt like more than that. Uh, right after we came up from our certification dive, I handed my fins onto the boat you know, there was a little round of applause because it's, it's always a nice moment when you have newly certified divers. And this extremely rare pod of pilot whales surfaced, and some of them were crossing underneath the boat. It was almost like a drill team, kind of converging from different uh. sides on different layers. They were cresting. And we stopped and floated for must have been a half an hour. I turned to my instructor and said, how often do you see this? And he's like, the boat coming out from the resort the accountants on there. Like, that's how exciting this is. Everybody dropped what they're doing, went out to see this. Absolutely. And that was sort of the uh, blessing of your certification, sort of inspired by your cousin. That's what it felt like, yeah. That's a beautiful thing. And then you're slow, you're graceful, you're you're tuned in, Mm -hmm. you're focused, and you find this submarine Grand Canyon. Absolutely. Tell me about that view. Well, I think probably the most awe-inspiring views of that sort happened uh, out in Palau in Micronesia. And that's an area that's known for big, steep drop-offs, like underwater cliffs, basically, where you're looking at beautiful coral to your left and to your right. The whole Pacific Ocean is stretching out. And this is an organic cliff. Oh, yeah. Generation upon generation of... Yep. You've got, say, bedrock and then, you know, coral reef topping it with Yeah, untold generations, centuries of coral. And and even underwater, there seems to be an appreciation of the sun. Yeah, it's just sparkling right down through it. And these coral reefs are sort of reaching for that, aren't they? Absolutely. You get big, flat lettuce uh, coral plates that can be up to, you know, six, seven feet across basket corals. Mm. Sometimes it looks like Disneyland, like in places in uh, Palau. You'll get these bright psychedelic colors. You'll also see a lot of World War II wrecks down there. So, you know, old Japanese gas masks. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Amanda Castleman, and she's a freelance journalist who writes about scuba diving all over the world. She teaches travel writing for a web company called writers.com, and you can check out Amanda's work at her website, amandacastleman.com. 
Amanda, in your, in your article, you wrote that Anthony's Key Resort in Honduras is one of the world's best scuba centers. So if you're a scuba diver traveling all the way to Honduras or Guam or whatever, and you want to choose a, a resort as your base, what makes a place like Anthony's be one of the world's best scuba centers? I think uh, one of the most important factors is choosing the environment you want to dive in. Um, somewhere like the Galapagos, for example, where I've not been, but it's tremendous diving, but it'd be very challenging for a new diver. A place like Anthony's Key has very protected pockets of reef. It's very sheltered. Um, so advanced divers can go get their thrill with the open blue water. Mm-hmm. Of course, the risk there is always that you can get sucked out into the great big blue water. There, there's basically a playground of nice beginner reefs near a place like Anthony's. And, and how do they cater to scuba divers that would travel a long ways to be oh, staying at their place? Anthony's is fantastic. It, it's the dream of a dive resort with the sort of shacks out over the water on pilings. And you're, you know, two minutes away from the dock where you're going to load up all of your gear. It's been assembled for you. You hop in the boat. And at night in the bar, you've got divers from all over the world hanging out, drinking, telling stories. Yes, there is, with the cheap, uh, I believe that was Salva Vida beer um, down in Honduras. And uh, what I was struck by in reading your your articles, Amanda, is the constant surprises you get. And, And one thing that was very striking to me was one of your favorite places was actually in Utah. No one was more surprised than me. I went out there chasing a story about retired Las Vegas showfish. When fish aren't quite pretty enough for the casinos, they get retired out to the Bonneville Sea Base, which is near, of course, the uh, speed racing facility where they set the world land records. Showfishes? What's that? Showfish. They're uh, fish that swim around in the lobbies of the casinos. Oh, really? So they get old and droopy and they say, it's time for you to go to Utah. Yeah, they get retired. They get farmed out. They don't just flush them? No. They take them to Utah. Which is much Um, nicer. Where do they put them then in Utah? Yeah, well, this is um, the Bonneville Sea Base. It's a series of connected lakes with Uh geothermal vents down at the bottom. And they discovered that because of all the salt left behind by the Great Salt Lake, you know, drying up and shrinking, it's left behind a pretty saline environment about like the Caribbean Sea. So that's good. It's great for these fish. It's hot springs. It's salty. uh, Tired old Las Vegas fish. They kind of go there. And And they've got, um, at this point now, nurse sharks. They've got uh, spotted rays. And in fact, they had uh, the only inland shark bite incident. So it's a created environment then. Yes, it is. And uh, in fact, they have Burning Man. The only official Burning Man event in Utah is held. So you have skinny dippers mixing with retired Las Vegas showfish. They've got the little mollies that can give you the fish pedicure like oh, in yeah. between your dives. It's a pretty kooky place. And you're out there on the salt flats where there's like hermits. Got a little Burning Man buzz going on. You got some fish nipping it, the calluses on your toes, and you got your retired Las Vegas showfish. Nothing like scuba diving Utah. Pretty unexpected, yeah. Amanda Castleman, thanks for joining us. It's been fun. Thanks. Share your favorite dives with us in our radio message board. You'll find it in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Next, we go to the urban jungle of Karachi and to the most remote reaches of the Amazon. It's really where the wild things are. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. If the world feels like it's getting more crowded, it's because we've become a truly urban planet. More people are living in cities today than ever before. And the phenomenon of the instant city is spreading throughout the developing world. Well, on assignment to cover news in Iraq, Iran, and Afghanistan for NPR, Steve Inskeep is often based in a city in a neighboring country that has its own share of tensions and problems. 
Karachi is Pakistan's largest city, and while he was there, he observed many vivid examples of the perils and the possibilities that are facing the world's population centers. Steve Inskeep is co-host of NPR's Morning Edition, and his recent book about his experiences is called Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi. Steve, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's an honor to be here, Rick, and thank you for helping me to travel so many places I haven't been through your shows. Well, thank you. And reading your book, of course, it's set in Karachi, but it occurred to me it's a lot more about one city. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a project that I got interested in because I have traveled a lot of different places, and you see common threads. You see Cairo uh, and Tehran, both cities that are way more than 10 million people now. I traveled a few years ago to Lagos. I've been to Bogota in Colombia. I read about so many other places around the world. And yeah, I mean, I realized there was this global trend of massive urban growth, of massive migration to cities. It encompasses so many things happening to the economy and to our world and to our culture as as a species. And there's almost a conversation going on between different cities as they look at each other, take ideas from each other, spread notions around, spread money around, and grow and change. Now, when you take uh, the example of Karachi, you mentioned after World War II, it had, uh, what, 400,000 people. Today, it's 30 Mm -hmm. times that population. At least. The population of Pakistan probably hasn't multiplied 30 times since World War II. But the city has. Yeah, that's one of the things that I've tried to look at. I've defined an instant city as a city that has grown much more rapidly than the country to which it belongs. And that really doesn't narrow it down that much. There are so many cities like that around the world. I mean, there's scores of them, if not hundreds of them, in China that qualify. There are cities like Mumbai in India or Nairobi in Kenya. It's everywhere. There are even a number of cities in the United States that qualify. Houston, Phoenix, even Los Angeles. Yeah, you mentioned Houston is six times its population since World War II. Yeah, yeah, and and it's tremendous growth there, and I've done some reporting there as well, and it's fascinating to see the way that it spreads across the landscape and the different kinds of people that you meet. As a matter of fact, if you go to Houston, it's not hard to find a Pakistani community. There are people from Karachi that you can find in Houston. People go to different cities looking for a better life than where they came from or trying to flee, sadly, in some cases, uh, flee a catastrophe that happened in the countryside or in the country from which they came. Now, when all these people are converging onto onto a city, that creates a new urban chemistry. What's the result of that? Oh, yeah. You have different kinds of people, and throwing them together in this swiftly changing place exposes all these different fault lines. There are so many that are visible all at once and just really dramatically visible in a swiftly changing place like Karachi on the shores of Pakistan. You have rich uh, versus poor. I mean, there are glass office towers by the beach if you go around this city, and you will also find vast unauthorized neighborhoods where millions of people live in small concrete block houses on land that essentially has been snatched from the government through some scheme or another. You have divisions between old-timers in the city and newcomers. And I bet this happens in in, in the city where you live, where even the newcomers eventually become old-timers and start resenting whoever comes after them. You have ethnic divisions. You have language divisions. Many languages are spoken in a city like Karachi. It's like New York City in that way. You have so many different ideas, contending and competing ideas for what the city could be. And different people in different decades may come out on top and the city just rapidly changes and and then changes again. And just when you think it can't change anymore, it does. And I guess the point of your book is this is now the new norm. The majority of the people on this planet are in this culture. Yes. Yeah. And it's kind of exciting to write about because this is a history in a way. But it's history that has happened so quickly that you can go around and find people who've seen the whole thing. And they've seen this place grow almost beyond recognition. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Steve Inskeep, and we're talking about his new book, Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi. We think of the developing world of having these massive cities. I was just in Istanbul, and 14 million people. It just seems inconceivable. But it's Mm -hmm. also in the United States. You called uh, Phoenix an instant city. Does that have some kind of a connection with the tumultuous politics in Arizona today? 
Oh, I think it's pretty obvious that it does. Phoenix, by the United Nations calculations, the UN has these estimates that I use of what cities have been uh, in population in different decades. Phoenix is something like 16 times larger than it was as a metropolitan area in 1950, 16 times larger, which means that almost everybody there is a newcomer. We know that migrants, immigrants, legal and illegal, have come from the South, from Latin America. But of course, people have also come from the North, from across the United States, and to some extent from other parts of the world. And they're all contending for a place in this metropolitan area where the rules are still being written and where the landscape is incredibly new. I mean, I was in Phoenix a couple of years ago, and you go about the downtown, and there are these spectacular new buildings. And they had, when I was there, they had just been opening train lines, and they were so new that there was a car that got struck by a train. I mean, the people were getting used to the idea of having these, these trains on the street. And you have this place that is rapidly changing, and that does have political effects. And it doesn't surprise me that Arizona, where Phoenix is the great metropolis, would become the epicenter for our debate about immigration and especially illegal immigration because you have this city where, where no one can feel entirely comfortable uh, because it's new to everyone. So this new mix of people, I mean, in the case of Phoenix, you've got you know, wealthy people coming in and immigrant laborers coming in and tripping over each other and having to share this urban environment. And then in the case yeah. of Karachi, you've got a situation where Hindus were kicked out and Muslims were moved in and, and it became more homogenous and less diverse. It seems like it's a prescription for not stability, but almost counterintuitively instability when you have that loss of diversity. Oh, yeah. And I think that this is something to bear in mind. I mean, we we get tense when home changes. And I, I totally understand that given the neighborhood that I live in in Washington, D.C., which changed a lot before I got there and has been changing ever since I arrived. A lot of our identity is wrapped up in the home that we live in. And when there are changes around, it becomes a difficult situation. Now, you would think that if a city became more homogenous, as you would say, if, if everybody was the same, that there would be less conflict. But when I look at the history of Karachi, I find almost an uncontrolled experiment to see if that is true. And you're exactly right, Rick. In 1947, when Pakistan became independent, India became independent uh, a day later. Both of them were freed from British rule. India was to be a majority Hindu nation. Pakistan was to be a majority Muslim nation. But of course, there was diversity in the population on both sides. Karachi was actually a majority Hindu city there in Pakistan. The vast majority of the Hindus within a few months either fled or were driven out. Hundreds of thousands of Muslims arrived as refugees from India. And the city went from being incredibly diverse to being, on the surface at least, not diverse, 90-some percent Muslim. You would think that would make things quieter and more peaceful, but in reality, what happened over time? I feel this is a parable, a metaphor for our existence. What happened over time was that people found new divisions among themselves. Muslims turned against other Muslims. People argued over ethnicity. They argued over language. They argued over money and power and land, the things that people obsess over in any city. Making that city less diverse did not make it more stable. In fact, quite possibly the reverse, because there were so many Hindus who had been part of the community there, who had been community leaders, who had been members of the elites, who had been business owners, and all of their education and their money and their just human capital, their ability, was taken away from the city and taken out of the equation. Wow. So they sort of created an insularity by making a, a homogenous city, and that let fear take root. Yeah, and just, I mean, people, of course, you know, they're, they're going to argue and they're going to contend with each other about what, what kind of a place do we want this to be? What kind of a country do we want to live in? What kind of a city do we want to live in? What kind of a neighborhood should this be? What kind of a civilization do we want to be a part of? Uh, Americans, of course, have these debates as well, and they can be ferocious debates, and that's perfectly fair. But, of course, they become dangerous when those debates are irresponsible or when they're conducted in places where there is not a good law and order situation. And that, over time, has proved to be the situation in Karachi and in a lot of other cities around the developing world. Let's remember, we're talking about a global trend here. And if we went to Mumbai in India, 
it's a different country, but we would find many of the same problems. If we went to Nairobi, we would find many of the same problems. In Cairo, in Bogota, we would find variations on these problems. When you have these divisions in society and there's no referee, there's no judge, because law and order, the writ of the government, as it is said in Pakistan, simply does not extend down to all the people. The government has somewhat lost control of the situation. It becomes an extraordinarily dangerous and deadly debate to have. Bringing it again back to the United States, I think there's this trend of people migrating to states where they feel more comfortable, states where their neighbors have their sort of similar outlook. And that means liberal areas become more liberal and conservative areas become more conservative. Is that related in some way to the lessons you're learning from the developing world? Oh, I suppose so. There's a writer named uh, Bill Bishop. There's a book uh, that he put out called uh, The Big Sort, in which he documents this trend of people moving to counties where more people are like them. And you have county by county, community by community, neighborhood by neighborhood, people being sorted out by political ideology, by party affiliation. And there's something human about that. You know, it's very normal, and it's happened in one way or another throughout our history. I mean, I quote Mike Royko, the great Chicago newspaper columnist, writing about Chicago from the 19th century up to the 1950s, he says, where there were these really distinct ethnic neighborhoods where people would cluster according to what country they came from and what language they spoke or what religion they were, and you just wouldn't leave the neighborhood. Because you couldn't. If you crossed the wrong street or crossed the railroad track into somebody else's territory, you might very well be attacked. So there's something natural about this. It happens. But I want to think of a city as the place where ultimately those barriers are overcome. They have to be overcome. You do have in a city, and especially a great megacity that's taking in migrants, countless kinds of people millions of them, and they are forced on some level to deal with one another, even if many of them do at some point cluster in these ethnic neighborhoods. They're forced at some point to appreciate each other's qualities, to appreciate the diversity of the place, and they're called upon to make use of the resources of everyone that they can because the challenges are so immense. These cities are where the future is being built, where the global economy is being built, where global stability or instability is being determined, where income inequality is going to be dealt with or not dealt with. And overcoming these questions of diversity is a big part of that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Steve Inskeep and his new book, Instant City, Life and Death in Karachi. Steve, when you walk through the streets of an instant city like Karachi... Do you find people demoralized, hopeful, happy? You wrote about one man who who said, I don't recognize the country I once knew. What thoughts hit you as you walk through what a lot of people would call a hellhole like Karachi? Well, I mean, there are a lot of people in Pakistan who despair about the state of the country right now, as you could understand. They've been through years of war uh, and their terrible political difficulties. They had this revolution, sort of like the Arab Spring. They had a revolution, got rid of a military dictator in 2007, 2008, And what has followed has been years of trouble and disappointment. They're discovering that it's very long and frustrating and arduous to rebuild a democracy, as I'm sure that people in Arab nations are also going to find out. They're beginning to find out. It's a tough road, and especially for this troubled country at this troubled time. But that's not all that you experience. You go into some industrial neighborhood, and you just start talking with people. And you realize that you're talking with a guy who's 20 years old, but he has done so much in his life already. He grew up in a rural village in the war-torn border area with Afghanistan. And he wanted a better education. And he managed to get his parents to send him as a teenager down to Karachi to stay with some relatives who were already here. And he gets the education in a school. And the village elders back home are impressed with him. And they send him some money. And he uses it to open a business. He's a fabric wholesaler. He's part of the giant textile industry there in Karachi. And all of a sudden, he's a business owner. And he's hiring other guys who've moved down from the village. And they're only being paid 3 or 4 or $5 a day. But that's a lot more than they could make in the village. And you discover that in this place that, yeah, you could see as a hellhole because I mean, it's polluted, it's crowded, it's dangerous. It's not developed in many ways. The power constantly goes out. Sometimes there are even water shortages in some neighborhoods. It's a tough place to live. And yet for so many people in it, it's an opportunity. 
it's an opportunity to make their lives at least a little bit better than they were. And you have to recognize the terrible problems, uh, the terrible human cost of a city like this. And yet you want to believe that people can ultimately succeed in making their lives at least a fraction better. And I just want to say that, that maybe the most valuable thing that I feel that I did uh, in this project was just show up, go visit a place that's very different from my home, and I quickly found just people, I mean, interesting ordinary people who had stories to tell that sometimes reminded me of home and sometimes seemed so strange. And you keep realizing how complicated a city like this is. Uh, just one example, this is a city where formally, for most people, alcohol is banned. It's supposed to be against Islam. But in reality, plenty of people drink. And in fact, religious minorities are allowed to have liquor stores. So they tend to be run by Hindus who still exist in, in the city of Karachi. And one evening with a friend of mine, I went to see a liquor store. I just wanted to hang out. And it was in this dark alley between two warehouses. And there was like a window cut in one of the warehouse walls. And guys were handing these tightly wrapped packages out to people, customers. And again, it's supposed to be for non-Muslims, but nobody asks your religion when you show up at the liquor store. And this guy started talking to me and insisted that I was his guest he seemed to be a regular at the store, and he, he wanted me to come to this room that he knew of and just sit around and, and drink a beer, drink a Millennium Brew, exactly, made in Pakistan. And we ended up going into one of the warehouses and up a spiral staircase, a metal spiral staircase, and into this grungy room with a sheet over the window, and there were four guys in the corner sitting on a mattress that was on the floor playing cards. They were Hindus. They worked at the liquor store. They had little posters of some of their gods up on the wall, and they were playing cards on their break. And this man who was such a regular customer had found out where their break room was, and he showed up, and they barely looked twice when he came in because he was such a regular there. And we just sat and talked for a while and sipped a beer. And that kind of experience to me is worth, it's worth a hundred dissertations on a city. You just realize that there are human beings who find ways to be comfortable and find ways to enjoy and experience life, even in a situation that seems to us harsh and forbidding. Learning about life and celebrating it in an instant city. Thanks very much, Stephen Skeep, for the insight and the inspiration. Oh, thank you. Our next destination couldn't be more different from the instant cities of the world. The dangers you'll encounter in the deepest reaches of the Amazon rainforest might come from nature, or it might come from an arrow aimed in your direction by people who just don't want you invading their corner of the world. Scott Wallace tells us what it's like to be part of a rare expedition to trace the steps of an uncontacted tribe. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. A few years ago, National Geographic sent Scott Wallace to the Amazon to document the journey of a Brazilian explorer, Sidney Pozuelo, who was attempting to track one of the last uncontacted tribes on the planet. Pozuelo's mission, to safeguard the isolation of the indigenous flecheros, or arrow people, who live completely cut off from the modern world. Scott Wallace spent three months in the Amazon jungle with Pozuelo, and he chronicles this harrowing experience in his new book, The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last uncontacted tribes. Scott Wallace joins us now to, to tell us about this experience. Scott, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Before we get into this particular tribe in the Amazon, what's the state of the remote, uncontacted tribes on this planet right now? Where, where are they? Are there many left? Actually, in Brazil, there are 26 confirmed groups of uncontacted Indians. In Peru, there are another 14 or 15. 
and Bolivia and Ecuador each have a couple, and there might be a couple still in Colombia and Venezuela. And there are a couple in the Andaman Islands in, in the midst of the Andaman Sea in the Indian Ocean. Uh, there might still be possibly a tribe left in New Guinea, possibly one in the Congo, but the great preponderance of them is in the Amazon and in the area that we went into to look for Liero people, that has the highest density of uncontacted tribes anywhere. What is the ethics of contacting these people? What do anthropologists think? Is it best to help them somehow, or is it best to just let them be? There, there's a polemic about this, but Sidney Posuelo, the man who I accompanied on this amazing journey into the deepest redoubts of the Amazon, founded and directed, at the time of the expedition, the Department of Isolated Indians within Brazil's Indian Affairs Agency. And the work of the Department of Isolated Indians and the philosophy that guides it is to actually leave these people alone, to not contact them, and to protect them from those who would contact them, giving them, in theory, the choice, the, the tribes, mm. the choice of when and where and if they would like to be contacted for them to come out of the forest, if you will. But Pozuelo's philosophy is leave them alone. But in order to leave them alone, you need to know where they are to get protection for their lands. So that's what we were up to. You were there for three months, and you were quite close to Sidney Pozuelo, who apparently is just uh, the guy on this topic. Did you have a sense that these uncontacted tribes knew about the outside world? What, what is your hunch about their perspective on all of this? What do they know? So Pozuelo, you know, has spent 40 years or more in the Amazonian jungles and has a lot of experience with these kinds of situations, had notched seven first contacts of his own before he led this change in Brazilian government policy to not contact these groups. What he said was that these tribes would have some glancing knowledge of the outside world. They would know that whites were dangerous. They would have some notion of what firearms are because they'd been shot at. But the only dialogue, at least, for example, with the Arrow people, the only dialogue between them and the outside world has been one of flying bullets in one direction and flying arrows in the other. They would know that there is an outside world, but they would have very little concept of how big it is. They would know that we were outsiders, perhaps populating a couple of rivers, not having any clue as to how big the world is out there. It's an amazing thing. I'm Rick Steves. We're speaking with Scott Wallace in his book, The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. Scott, when you think about these tribes, there's no trading, there's no missionary contact. They might have run across a, a road one day when they ventured outside of their territory or something, but do they have any indirect contact with the West, or, or how does that work? Uh, well, it depends on the groups. Not all the groups are in the same situation. The Arrow people are extremely cut off from the outside world. They live in a realm where there are few possibilities of intrusions, I think. There's not any road near them. Mm -hmm. uh, they stay away from the major rivers. Some of the other tribes are probably in a more vulnerable situation. They may have come out onto roads, and they may, in fact, some of them be um, in a state of constant flight, fleeing from encroaching chainsaws, bulldozers, and the advancing frontier. They would have, in the past, most of these tribes, if not all of them, those that are hiding, appear to be hiding from the outside world, experienced violent clashes with the encroaching, you know, white dominant Western society at some point in the past. These groups are believed to be the actually the descendants of the survivors of bloody clashes, massacres, and efforts to enslave them that took place at some point in the past. And so they have this kind of notion of us being a danger and a threat to them, and they are hiding in the deepest redoubts of the Amazon. So these are remnants of larger civilizations that survived some horrific massacre, and now they're camping out far away, and they probably have in their folk legends scary ideas of the threats that lurk outside of, of their little zone. I think that's entirely correct. You know, reading your book, it just 
it was engrossing because one minute it, it seemed like you were seeking out the tribe and, and on their trail, and then the next minute you were avoiding them. It, it seems like they were always apparent that they were around you, but it was like the jungle was the ally of, of the tribe, and, and you and your gang were sort of doing this very delicate dance in the middle of the jungle. Definitely. It was like uh, an extremely strange and dangerous dance that we were uh, locked in with the Arrow people. They clearly, at a certain point, came to know that we were there, although I have to say that we penetrated rather deeply into their territory before they did detect us. Once they did, the tensions heightened significantly, and they you know, left several clues around that they were not happy about our presence. You wrote about a broken branch that was kind of a don't go beyond this point that Pasuelo really understood right away, and that seemed like sort of an ominous thing. Our journey unfolded in a series of uh, stages with a couple of weeks of river travel up into the headwaters of one river, and then our overland trek through very arduous terrain began. And three weeks into that overland trek, as we were bushwhacking through very dense jungle with lead scouts slashing open the jungle with their machetes and us following single file through this um, rugged terrain, we came upon a footpath as well-trammeled as like the Appalachian Trail. And uh, we followed that for a while because Pasuelo consulted his compass and it seemed to be leading in the same direction he wanted us to go in. And we had been on this path for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes or so when we came to this sapling that is was dangling by a shred of bark across the path, which Pozuelo, um instantly recognized as a warning from the Arrow people to go no further. And he said, let's not go any further. We want to respect their wishes. And he directed us off the path at a right angle at that point. And it was odd for me when I read your book that, you know, you're the modern uh, explorers with your GPS uh, gear and your radios and your probably some weaponry and everything. And and these guys just had arrows, yet they were very potent. Explain why they're called the arrow people. Yeah. In fact, nobody knows what they call themselves because there's never been peaceful contact with them. They are referred to as the flecheros, the arrow people, by um, those who inhabit the jungles adjacent to their lands, um, other indigenous tribes, in fact, because of their reputation as fierce warriors who repel all intrusions into their lands with their poison-tipped arrows. So that's why they are known as the Arrow People. It's actually more of a technological distinction to distinguish them from other groups who are in those jungles. Um, the Headbashers, who are the Karubo Indians who use war clubs to attack unsuspecting intruders into their territory. So mm-hmm. the arrow people have this reputation as fierce warriors who use their arrows to defend their territory. We did have firearms, you're correct. We had radio and a GPS, although in the dense jungle under the canopy, those things don't work. Uh, we did have firearms for hunting and to possibly repel an attack, but only by firing warning shots in the air. The guiding principle of Brazil's Indian Affairs Agency is die if you must, but never kill. And so the standing orders were, if we were to be attacked, to fire warning shots only in the air, never directly on the Arrow people. Wow. When you're following Sidney Pozuelo around, you you could get your head bashed or your body riddled with poison arrows, depending on which tribe you encounter. That's right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Scott Wallace, who's finished a three-month incredible journey in the far reaches of the Amazon. His book is called The Unconquered, In Search of the Amazon's Last Uncontacted Tribes. Scott, you were talking about they knew you were following them. How did you know they knew you were following them? Well, at one point, we almost stumbled right upon a couple of them, and they took off running. There were two of them. We saw a fresh footprint in the mud. That was the first clue. And then we actually heard their voices up ahead. And Pozuelo had 20 Indians from three different tribes, friendly tribes, with us, with a representation of different indigenous languages, thinking Pozuelo's calculus was that perhaps one of the three languages 
that we had represented in our expedition might be close enough to the Arrow people's language to be able to communicate with them to defuse a potentially violent situation. Anyway, Pozuelo called one of each of the three tribes that we had with us to the front of the, our column to call out into the forest to say, you know, Pozuelo said, you know, tell them we're here in peace. We're not going to harm them. We're just passing through. And each of our, you know, there was a Matisse, a Marubo, and a Cana Marie with us at that point who called out into the jungle. And these Indians that had seen us took off running, and they dashed across hmm. a makeshift bridge, a log that had fallen across a river, and disappeared into the forest on the far side of the river. From that point on, Pozuelo said, you know, these guys are going to be going straight back to their village to report on what they've seen. And we knew at that point that we were going to be followed the rest of the way as we trekked through their land. It's fascinating to hang out with Pozuelo and his, his gang of uh, jungle experts. Indeed. In fact, as we went deeper into the land of the Arrow people, we'd see what they call vestiges of the people living there, the Arrow people, you know, abandoned fishing camps, uh, discarded baskets and things of that nature. And our scouts could look at these things and instantly date mm -hmm. them. And they would yeah. say, huh. you know, this is two months old or this is a week old until we saw those footprints. These are from right now. Right now. It's interesting, as I read through this book, you never really sat down and, and had lunch with these guys. And, and that wasn't a failure. You set out to find them, but you didn't actually want to encounter them. What was your agenda? Was it successful? Indeed, it was. The objective was to avoid making contact while gathering information about them. So Pozuelo wanted to map the extent of their territory, the extent of their seasonal wanderings, in order to bolster protection for the land and to keep contact with the outside world from occurring. So, in fact, we did not want to make contact with them, but in order to uh, do what we set out to do, you risk actually making the contact. That's why this is such a strange <laughs> dance. And, and no, we never did sit down and have lunch with them, and that, in fact, in some very significant ways, would have uh, represented a failure of the mission. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Scott Wallace, his book, The Unconquered, in search of the Amazon's last uncontacted tribes. Scott, I couldn't help when I was reading the book to think of the steady encroachment of modern industry, logging and modern roads and so on. What were your thoughts when you were out there about this sort of big-picture dynamic, pushing these last fragile little tribes into the last remaining corners of this planet? Yeah, you get a sense when you're out there that, one, this is a magnificent wilderness that needs to be preserved, if at all possible, but at the same time, you see the encroachment going on. Fortunately, in the area that we were trekking in, the Valley do Javari, the Javari Valley, it's one of the largest unbroken wilderness jungle habitats on the earth. It's got a fair degree of protection, which hopefully will translate into many more years of maintaining this spectacular wilderness, which is also quite terrifying, I should add. Yeah. It's an area where, you know, we are not necessarily at the top of the food chain. <laughs> but you do know, I mean, I've seen plenty of areas in the Amazon where the forests are getting pushed back at alarming rates and scattering these tribes who are definitely on the run from the chainsaws and bulldozers, and they will... You know, some of these groups are bound to disappear in our generation, I think. Um, it's a real tragedy. It sounds like Brazil is uh, taking this challenge seriously and actually doing an admirable job of, of trying to hold the line. I would say they are, although the record is spotty. While they um, have this great policy to protect the uncontacted tribes on the one hand, there are also plans on the drawing board for huge development projects, which will ultimately affect these tribes, too. I'm sure there's a lot of corporate interest up against that idealism. Indeed. Scott, when you were writing, how were you inspired by just being under that canopy and working with Indians in your crew who were probably at ease while you were eating just the most bizarre food and, and experiencing not being on the top of the food chain? <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well... My mission was to document this journey in meticulous detail. That's what I came to understand my mission to be. I was there to write about Sidney Pozuelo, but also to just document this incredible journey and this amazing wilderness and the indigenous people and the other scouts who were with us. 
And that was really my mission. So that's what I had to do. So I took meticulous notes. I had to protect my notebooks in Ziploc bags. And I was very careful about trying to keep sweat from my hands and my legs and all the moisture from damaging those notes. But that was my mission to Mm. take notes. And I was fortunate also to have a great hammock that I would uh, recline in at night, protected from all the dangers of the jungle, the snakes and the bugs Mm -hmm. and the vampire bats. And I would lie in that cocoon and write. Um, Before I turned in every night, I would write as much as I could. A lot of us just love to go camping. And and I couldn't help but think about sitting around the campfire with you and those men who were on your team with with bones in their noses and all the noises in the darkness. Yeah, I would be sitting there around the fire and there were you know, the the fire would illuminate all the faces sitting around the campfire with an orange glow that flickered and you'd hear a chorus of crickets and cicadas and bugs and frogs all together in this very loud kind of cacophony and you just had a sense looking around the campfire and hearing the conversations in different indigenous languages and Pozuelo telling stories about jaguars that he had encountered and everyone kind of trading these stories from the forest, that this was like you were lost in time, like this could have been something that happened three or four hundred years ago in some other location. There was just an enormous sense of mystery and depth to time that I felt in the midst of the forest with these people. And Scott Wallace was there with his notepad writing by the flickering fire so we could read The Unconquered in search of the Amazon's last uncontacted tribes. Scott, what an adventure. Thanks for sharing it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks to our colleagues at OPB Radio in Portland and at National Public Radio in Washington for their help today. You'll find program extras and links to our guests behind the radio tab at ricksteves.com. Rick has also voiced guided walking tours to many of Europe's most popular sites. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe package on our website. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 130 cities across the country. Help yourself to free podcasts of past shows and Rick's audio tours of Europe's greatest sites in the radio section of our website. For the latest on Rick's radio and TV work, his guidebooks and his European tours with small groups, visit ricksteves.com.